You are listening to From Shadow to Substance, Studies from the Book of Hebrews, presented at Hokesson Baptist Church in the spring of 2008 by Pastors Rick Bino and John Boulay. Today's sermon is entitled, Therefore, Fix Your Thoughts on Jesus. And now, Pastor John. Again, welcome to Hokesson Baptist. Let me say that first. Uh, you're joining us, if you're joining us for the first time, you're joining us in, the, in partway through a series in Hebrews called From Shadow to Substance, where we're working through the book. And uh, in the book of Hebrews, there are a series of therefore statements. Uh, and we thought that this would be a, a constructive way to organize our, our sermon series. Um, there's ten therefores uh, that really kind of hit home in Hebrews, and we're going to go from each one to the other to, to see what the Lord has to teach us. So that's where we are today. Uh, as a recap of last week, uh, we were in Genesis, or whew, not Genesis, Hebrews 1 and 2. And there we saw, if I could sum it up, in fact, I have this bold little title above my, uh, my writing that sums it up for me. It says, The Son Superior to Angels, which is a, a pretty good summation of what we talked about last week. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is a, expressed on the point that Jesus was not an angel. He was not an angel. And he goes on to start from building on that. He says, in fact, not only was Jesus not an angel, but he's God's son. That's the first quotation of, old, uh, of Scripture that the writer uses is here. You are my son, in verse 5. Today I have become your father. He goes on from that to say, not only is he God's son, he was involved in the creation process. And not only was he involved in the creation process, but the, the angels themselves are servants of Christ our Lord. And so the book opens with this establishment that Jesus is not only not an angel, but is a supreme being of the likeness and image and substance of God um, that we worship. And he's going somewhere with that. He says, because of that, don't you think that if you received the salvation that was preached through the angels to Moses, you would also heed the message being preached by Christ himself? Because the Hebrew people had this feeling, this tradition... And it shows up, by the way, across the New Testament. I was speaking ju just between the services about how it almost shows up as this hint of war, that there was this, this liveliness of angels, how they moved through Old Testament times. And the feeling was among the Hebrew people was that the angels were the ones who handed Moses. They transmitted the law on the mountain to Moses. And so the writer is saying, if you heeded the salvation that came from the angels to Moses... How much more important is it that you heed the salvation and the good gift of the gospel that was brought to us by Christ, who is in every way superior to the angels? You have this trajectory of what I'm about to say is way better. And that's how he opens the book of Hebrews. Is how much more ought we heed the salvation? And he ends with our first therefore from last week, which was, therefore pay attention, that you do not drift away from the gospel of Christ. Because it is that much more important than the message preached to Moses. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning as we pick up in chapter 2, verse 5. Um, I'm going to read the, uh, the fifth verse and then we'll talk a little bit and then we'll get reading some more. Chapter 2, verse 5 of Hebrews, it reads this. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. And I want to stop there because I feel like uh, we ought to have some context as to the world in which the people 
of Hebrews are living. It was a world that was infatuated with spirituality. There's been things recovered in Ephesus, coins and, and charms, that on one side of the coin was a, was a Hebrew uh, religious symbol, like a menorah, for example. And if you would flip the coin over, on the back side would be a spell or a charm that you could recite for good health. I mean, because even the spirituality and the witchcraft and the infatuation with spiritual forces had even permeated into Jewish culture in this time in the whole Mediterranean area because there was this, everything about them was God, God or gods or mythology driven. There was this feeling like the Caesars are gods, right? I mean, you had Jupiter and you had Mars and you had all these gods, right? And they adopted them. Where did they get them? They got them from the Greeks 400 years earlier. And so the Greeks talked about Zeus and Hera and Athene, you know, Athens and all of the oracles that were associated with it and all of these things. And that's the world they're living in. They're living in a world that is absolutely caught up with the spirituality of myth. And so when, when the writer of Hebrews comes into this, he has to stomp on it right away and say, all that myth stuff you heard, angels, spirit world, Christ is superior. And then he moves into that we as mankind are not subjected to the angels. And here's how I want you to think about that. The mentality at the time was, uh, well, here, I'll use this example. Uh, Clash of the Titans. Have any of you ever seen Clash of the Titans? You're, you're identifying your time period, right? It was, if, you, if, if I say to you Clash of the Titans and you went, yeah, that movie rocked. You're a child of the 80s. You know what I mean? Because it was like the coolest movie. And, and I was just young enough that it looked real to me. You know, it's like the movie Kroll. I thought that was the coolest movie in the world until I saw it as an adult. And then I was ashamed of myself. I'm like, I was such a, I was so pathetic. Well, in Clash of the Titans, there's this, it's this whole kind of mythology-driven movie, right, where they have some Greek human who's traveling through misadventures on the earth but what kind of the back story, what's happening behind the curtain is way up in like Zeus land, you know, in heaven of the gods. There's all these gods and they're standing around this kind of human chess table. And what would happen is, you know, uh, Zeus, who's jealous of something, right, because there's always this mythological soap opera going on up there. Um, you know, he's trying to zing another god, so he's, he's against the character. And so... Part of the movie is this, the gods kind of playing the, the chess pieces to foil this human's quest. And the other one is, right, he has some sponsors or some advocates in the Zeus land area, and they're playing their cards and pieces to help him along. So he'll get some kind of mechanical owl. If you haven't seen this, you're, you're like, what is he talking about? But if you have seen it, you're like, yeah, a mechanical owl rocks. Um, so he gets a mechanical owl, I think, from Hephaestus, who, you know, forged it in the god uh, forgery. You know, he gets these things, the magic shield and the staff and the, the helmet. All of these things are to help him along his way. But the distinct feeling you get is how they felt, which is mankind is completely subject to the arbitrary will of the spirit world. That's how they felt. They were, they were always dealing with preserving life. And if I do this, I can preserve this. I can appease, appease this side of the gods without angering this side of the gods. And if I play my cards just right and I buy this many charms, the gods will not be angry with me. And there was this, this just, this, in my, 
in my imagination and in my study, I feel this was the suffocating attitude among the Mediterranean world of how they just felt so subjected to the spirit world, which I think in this case the writer of Hebrews is referring to uh, in some degree as to being subjected to angels. And here's the byproduct of it. I think the byproduct of this is that it breeds an idea of a great chasm of distance between God and man. That whole ideology says that God is the God or gods or whatever are way up there and they're unconcerned generally with my welfare, they're unconcerned with my purpose in life, they're unconcerned with, with what is going to happen on the world, right? They're dealing with their soap operas and we are the medium in which it's dealt with, is the feeling. And so the mentality that starts to breed is the gods don't care, they're way up, they're mindless of us, and we are small. We're small, we're insignificant. If I cry out, they might laugh. And my needs, who do I go to? There's this huge chasm, this distance that it cannot be spanned in ancient mythology that between God and man. And what happens be, about that is we're still suffering today. Because the mythology, the stories have changed, but the ideology has remained the same. We have never, the pagan world or the non-believing world has never ever surfaced from a mentality that mankind is insignificant and that God is distant and does not care. Outside of the Judeo-Christian mentality, that is the going assumption, is you don't matter, the gods don't care, or if they do, they're arbitrary or it's fate or it's destiny, and the best that you can do is spend your life carving away, finding as much happiness as you can right now because you're the only one taking care of yourself. That's the world that we live in. And here's the idea about it. Two things happen. The first thing is you or I or anyone who doesn't have a Christian worldview has this mindset that they are not that important. They're just not that significant. And what comes out of that is if I'm not that significant, my sins are not that significant. Right? If you don't realize that you're here for a purpose and that you are the culmination of a creative process, then you don't matter, so how can your sins matter? Which is why when we share the gospel with people outside the faith and then you say, well, you've sinned, they go, what do you mean? Big deal. You're gonna, God's going to send me to hell for lying? Come on. I mean, don't you feel that? Do you ever feel that? Like, you've got to be kidding me that I'm going to go and perish in hell because I did a little sin. It's a little sin. The, that whole ideology stems from the fact that how can it matter? It's a, mis, a small mistake that a very small person made. And the writer of Hebrews is here to say, it, you are not a small person, and it is not a small mistake. So this is how he continues. You are not subject to the angels. And I'll pick up in verse 6. But there is a place where someone has testified. It's Psalm 8. It says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now, I'll stop there, because the writer of Psalm 8, just previous to this verse, says something like this. When I consider the works of your hands and the stars and the moon and the heavens above. So he starts very mythologically, doesn't he? When I look out, in fact, what do we name our planets? The, the fourth planet from the sun we call Mars, which is the god of war, Right? The fifth planet from the sun is Jupiter, which is the mighty god. Zeus, right? These are the Roman names. Venus, the god of love. Neptune, Pluto. We've named them the gods of mythology because it echoes. When you look up, you go distant. They, they, they're so far away. 
They're the heavenly bodies that orbit our world and they zing lightning bolts down on us. That's the feeling. And so when he says, the psalmist says, when I look up in the sky and I see the stars and the planets and the moon, he goes, I have to ask myself, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. And that's where the world of mythology would stop. They'd go, I don't know. I'm nothing. But this is what the psalmist says. You have made him little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. The psalmist says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? He doesn't explain exactly what. I don't know, I guess is what he would say there. But he says, but for some reason, you have made him so that everything on the planet is under his feet. Right? When God made Adam, he made him to have complete and full dominion over everything that he saw. He was the absolute most important thing that God had ever created. Everything else was secondary to him, and it was edifying of him. If the trees could talk, the trees would say, I'm here in the garden to please man. Right? And if the animals could speak, they'd say, the whole reason I'm here is to bring joy to man. Which is totally not mythological. Right? In myth, we're insignificant. I had this feeling, I was writing this sermon, and there were these ants crawling all over the desk. So I'd be like, I'd be like in the, 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 mo- the, like the moment of inspiration, you know, oh yeah, this is the smartest. And then like this thing, and I, <laughs> be gone, foul ants. You know, but I, I had this feeling, it came to me that that is how we view ourselves, as ants like crawling around in the playground of life. There's this huge playground with swings and seesaws and a big cool slide, and we're ants in it who, have, who look out at it and go, I wonder what that's for. Huh. I don't know, I'm just an ant, but we're not. Right? And the writer of Hebrews is saying that. So he says, he quotes Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And then he continues, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. He's a realist, though. He goes, Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everybody. This huge distance, this impassable distance beyond Mars and Jupiter and Neptune, this distance between the gods and man, the writer of Hebrews says, it's there and I see it. And Christ came to bring and close the distance. Right? From, from beyond the angels, it starts off with, the whole book starts with, God is big. He's so big, he's bigger than the angels. And then he says, right here he says, and by the way, the man who's big and is so big in the angels became something less than the angels, so to defeat death and close the distance, so that everything can be under our feet again. Everything, is what he writes. In my mind... It hurts to watch how our ideology just permeates through the different ways we behave. Because in in the secular worldview, we have this pyramid, right? And way up, because here's the deal, right? There's no such thing, even if you meet a hardcore atheist, they're still the most superstitious people you ever meet, right? So let me give you an example. I go into a sports bar, 
with a room full of hardcore atheists, if that's what you want to call them, I don't know, whatever, right? And a room full of sports parties. And they're watching a game, a baseball game. It's bottom of the ninth. The same pitcher's on the mound. He's sweating, right? And he's rubbing the ball. I'm a lefty, so he's a lefty, right? And nobody on the other team has yet to put their foot on first base. Now, those of you who watch baseball, you know what I'm talking about, right? So I walk in. Now, I don't, but this is why I've started. Because you walk in and you go, hey, he's about to pitch a perfect game. And you can't even get it out of your mouth before there are glass mugs hurled across the room. People throwing peanuts at you. Shut up, tots. You're going to, what are you going to do? You're going to jinx the pitcher. Now, I guess it doesn't matter, really, that I'm in the sports bar on the East Coast and it's San Diego playing at home. Right? Three time zones away, 3,000 miles, it's all going on, but you could jinx the pitcher. Right? And now, now you know why I've started to watch baseball, because I've made a few of these mistakes. Ah, look at that! You know, and so you'll find, there's no more, right, the first thing to learn about baseball is respect the superstitions. Right? If you're going to get along with somebody, a Yankee fan, you're going to know the Yankee superstitions. If you're a Boston guy, you're going to know the Boston superstitions, right? Well, that's how it is all across the world. You talk to somebody by the water cooler, yeah, I applied for this new job. I think, I'm, ah, I think I might get it. I don't know. And he goes, well, I think you'll get it. Knock on wood, right? Or you're walking around, and the, people are much more aggressive about this when they're young, but you walk around and you see a penny on the ground. Now, now at my age, I'm like, no, I know I'm not old, but I still, I'm at the point in my life where I look at that penny, I'm like, is it worth it? I'm just like, if I go down, I have to come back up. So fortunately, I have birthed four kids, so I can get one of them. Hey, come over here. There's a penny. And then they're like, oh, Dad's so generous. You know? But the whole idea is, I see this penny, and I'm like, I ought to get it, because it's good luck. Right? If I get this penny, it's good luck. You know? It's just a penny. You know? Uh, or here's another one, right? A black cat crosses, everybody, even if you don't believe it, you think it, right? Does everybody know your, your zodiac sign? Anybody not know? Okay, there's one or two in the whole group, right? Superstitions, they're all over the place, right? We, whether we like it or not, we probably, almost all of us participate in them because there's this pyramid, and there's this, we're coming out of a world where God, the gods are distant. They're way up there, and we're way down here. They're very big, and we are very, very small. And it's this kind of ideology that allows us to do things like uh, in China when they say, you may only have one child. Because human life is very, very small. Right? Or in Africa, when there's the genocide in Rwanda, or in Germany during the Second World War. If, if, now, I've spent some time in Kuwait. I have never seen in my life, because here's the pyramid, right? God's way up there, then the spirit world and superstitions that you don't want to jinx yourself, right? And then, depending on where you live, lions and tigers and bears. And then humans. But we, if we're honest, we don't really stop there. What kind of humans? Well, there's the white humans, white Western humans, English speaking. And then there's uh, the Hispanic humans or the this humans or the that humans. And when I spend time in Kuwait, I can tell you I was number two on the food chain. A Kuwaiti national is number one in Kuwait. Just after them is me, an American. And generally, if I was a, just an at-large citizen... I could go through checkpoints without them IDing me. If they stop me, I could be like, Tch. you understand you're stopping an American. Right? They, the guards would think twice, right? If after me would be Lebanese, you'd want to be Lebanese and then maybe Egyptian. 
The last thing you would ever want to be in, in Kuwait is Sri Lankan or Bangladeshian. If you're one of those, you're not human. Someone will probably never learn your name. If you were like a, a Bangladesh, uh, I'll call it slave, if you're a slave brought over to clean someone's house and you die, no one will o- open an investigation. You'll get stopped at every checkpoint and you better have your papers. Because there's this huge pyramid. Because the gods are way up there and we're way down here. And they really, since we're small, the things we do wrong can't really be that big. If we're small, those things are smaller. The writer of Hebrews is is here to say, you're not small. In fact, the maker of the universe came across space and time to redeem you. The entire globe is here for you. And if you're not small, then the things you do are not small either, which is the point of sin, right? So we say sin, so you cheat in your taxes, big whoop. Well, God says, you know what? It isn't that. He says, God says, you have systematically refused to worship me as the maker and redeemer of all creation. Now, how does that sound? Does that sound small? That's how God looks at it, right? We say, it's just taxes, right? He says, that is a throne in your life that I demand to sit on. I have demanded it of you since the moment I thought of you. In your mother's womb, I have placed my intent on being in that part of your life, and you refuse to give it to me time and time again. Now, does that sound small? We write sin with a lowercase letter. God always writes sin with a capital letter because he sees it as rebellion of mankind against his rule, and we rebel against him because we think we're real small and he doesn't care. But Christ does care. And he's heard our cry, and so this is what he says. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not... I'm picking up in the back of verse 8. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now listen, and bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you see this? Not only has Christ bridged the gap, but he bridges the gap all the way over here and says, now you are my brother. It is a degree of familiarity that anyone in the Mediterranean world couldn't even deal with. To say, okay, so there's, I mean, if we were going to put in words, okay, so there's a Jupiter, right? And Jupiter has a son of his own essence. And because of your sinfulness, which for some reason he's completely concerned about, because you're not small, you're not big, he sent his son, who died and resurrected, and now you call yourselves the brothers of God. That's what he's saying here the brothers of God. Augustine once said this. He said, God became man in order that man might one day become God. And not in a heretical way, right? In a way of elevating us to this attitude of immortal worship of God alone. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says this. He says, 
I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. By the way, that quotation comes from the back half of Psalm 22, which starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the writer is echoing back, Why do you think Christ was crucified on the cross? Why do you think he cried out about, Why have you forsaken me? Look at the scars on my hands. And he says, Because at the end, he'll say this, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, the writer quotes Isaiah, I will put my trust in him. And he says again, Here am I, the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I'd like to talk about death for a little bit. Um, I think we fool ourselves when, uh, if we think we don't think about it that much. Now, I, I understand the older we get, the more we start to deal with it. Because our grandparents pass away, so that's your first introduction to it, right? Generally speaking. And then your parents start to get ill, and then one day it starts to be you, right? And so there's really only a small sliver of life, your first 20-some-odd years or so, where you're immortal, Right? And then you, get, you wake up and you get into real life and you realize everything is mortal and everything perishes. And what you find is, is that life as you and I know it becomes ordered around managing death. Right? You know, I, so I could care about how much I get paid to some degree as long as I have health care. Because that's a big deal. Right? Now, many of you will f- feel like, cut my pay but keep my health care benefits. Right? Or we have this strange thing we call life insurance. I'm not quite sure how they twisted that term but I've bought a lot because they promised me I'll live forever, right? So we have these things, life insurance, and then we have this whole mentality of we have to get going in life and accumulate now because the timer is ticking. The whole scheme, the whole approach to accumulating things is designed around the fact that there's an end point. At some point, you and I will stop accumulating, and the game is over. Otherwise, why would we race to do this? Here's a perfect example. So my kids, uh, particularly my older two boys, are starting to get to that age where some days they're really hungry and some days they're not. So one day, you know, there's one day where they can literally like open their mouth and put a triangle slice of pizza <laughs> straight in so they smile. It's like big crust. And then the next day, the very same kid will like have his fork and he'll be like playing with his food thinking of things to talk about. That plant's really green. You know what I mean? And then you know, eat your food and be like, oh. I mean, it's really green. That plant is really green. You know? And, and so my middle son is, is the worst at this. And so we have this deal where he's sitting down eating and it's about an hour into his meal and we've all eaten dessert and I've finished the dishes. And uh, the rest of us are working on a schematic for world peace and he's there doing this, and I'll say to him, because in our house we're spankers, uh, so I'll say to him, I'll say, buddy, and I'll give him that look, you know, I say, I'm getting the timer out, and I grab the egg timer off the stove, and his eyes go, and it like starts shaking, and I tick it to five minutes, and I stick it in front of him, and it tick, tick, tick. And that boy will woof that food down like there's no tomorrow. He goes at it like it is his last meal. 
Why? Because the clock is ticking and it's going to come to an end. And so he is going to get what he can get and he's going to consume and consume and consume. And that's what you and I do with life. How much more do you think we would take things in stride if we would live forever? I mean, the, the issue of what are you going to do this spring break, you know, so you, your one vacation comes up every year and you kind of have, you go through tension about how to relax, right? <sighs> I got my one week and I really got to relax. So do I go here? I don't know. Do I go here? Ah! I just got to relax, right? If you had like a thousand years, you might be like, maybe we'll just go to Alabama this month. Does it sound okay? I've never been there. You know, Delaware. Let's go to Delaware. You know what I mean? Because you have your whole life. But we have the sense of urgency. The clock is ticking, and that's because of death. And Christ has come to bridge this gap and to say, now you can really live because there is no more death. How do you think you would do things differently if you really thought Christ showed up to you and said, I want you to live like you would never die? What would you do now? What would become eternally important? Because it says here that Christ came to get rid of the fear of death. In verse 14, he talks about that he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. In verse 15, and free those who all their lives are held in slavery by fear of death. I don't think that the ancient Mediterranean world cornered that market. I think you and I fight that just as much today. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's us as believers. For this reason, he had to be made in the like, like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who were being tempted. Now, the writer of Hebrews, in subsequent weeks, is going to start to flesh those ideas out at greater length. So we're not going to go into too much detail, except to say that he's mindful of this very big Christ, who at the opening of the book, he's emphatic that he's greater than the angels. He is the Son of God and the co-creator of the universe, became man who is slightly below the angels, so that he might suffer with us and mourn with us, so that we can have... uh, a counselor and an advocate to petition the Lord for us. That's what Christ is. And that's why he's come. So here's your therefore. Chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. God sees a group of people who think they're insignificant. And a group of people who think, because I'm insignificant, my wickedness is even less significant. And he sends someone in our likeness, not only to to elevate our, our... conscience to repentance, but so that when we fix our eyes on Christ, we learn what it really is like to be truly human. We are learning what it's like to be human. Christ is the only one who ever lived every day like he'd lived forever, and he came for the express purpose of dying. 
because he held on to this idea of immortality under the headship of Christ, of the Lord, that we've been called to. We are Christ's brother. We bear Christ's image. We live in Christ's house. And we've been called to Christ's purpose. Now, if you're outside the body of Christ this morning, the message I have is, one, you're not insignificant. Right? Christ didn't die just for those who do believe, but for those who will believe. And so there is an admonition today to come to Christ. And to come to Christ because not only you're insign- are you significant and for a greater purpose that God has called you to, but the things that you have done in your life are not insignificant. Your sins are not lowercase sins. They are capital sins of wickedness against the Almighty God. And if I water that down, I'm lying to you. God has called us to obedience and to worship. But Christ has made the gap closed. And if we belong to Christ, my question to you is, are you living a life that looks to Christ? Are you living a life that seems that it does not bind itself up with the fear of death? That doesn't bind itself up with What's my purpose in life? I mean, I'm very sensitive to what's my purpose in life, but I heard just this week, you could open almost any page of this book and find enough purpose to occupy your week. Right? And obedience to God. And And I will wager to you that obedience to God will bring purpose in your life. That he's waiting for an obedient crowd that when he says, follow me, they actually come. And then you find purpose. And for those reasons, Christ has closed the gap. I'm going to close this in prayer. We're very mindful to always give an invitation. Uh, in accordance with the, the, the tenor of the Scripture, I have a feeling that the, the Scriptures may be calling people to commitment to Christ, whether that's recommitment or to commitment. And I just encourage you as I pray, that you would use this if you, need your, if you need a benchmark in your life as to I'm just looking for an opportunity to commit to Christ. I offer this to you this morning. Why would you pass it up? Please bow with me. Father, we thank you for your Son who is far superior to the spirit world. And we thank you for Christ who condescended himself, Lord, to be with us and to experience what we experience, and to close the gap between God and man. Father, we ask forgiveness of our wickedness. Lord, we ask that Christ would intercede upon our behalf for mercy, for the ways that we have disregarded your word and your authority. And Lord, we thank you for Christ who is faithful, who is always faithful and always good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.